0: Is it working yet? There we go. Okay, we have sound. All right, a couple of announcements just to remind everybody. We have the picnic on Saturday, and uh, we have, uh, we'll have hamburgers and hot dogs. And so uh, we have, um, and if people will bring sides and desserts as they usually do, uh, we'll have a, a tremendous picnic. Looks like it's going to be just perfect weather. So uh, look forward to seeing everybody and having some time just to relax. Don't forget to bring chairs and, and bug spray. So there's maps and directions out there in the fellowship hall. Just a reminder, Doug Petrovich will be here on Thursday night. I texted him today. There's a new film out there. For those of you who probably remember some of this, there's a, a, a producer who's done a Christian film series called Patterns of Evidence. Patterns of evidence had to do with issues related to Genesis, issues related to the uh, Exodus, where the, where the crossing was, different things related to that, different things related to now Mount Sinai. And it's a two-parter. And I don't know how, I, as I was listening to it, I said, I don't know that this would be, mean a lot to a lot of people. It means a lot to me because there's 14 different places that have been set forth by archaeologists with a biblical case for the location of Mount Sinai. And for me, it was just good. They went through about six of them, seven of them in the part one. And, you know, the strengths and weaknesses in each view, and it, it was interesting. And um, the one pr- problem that was not addressed in any of them last night is the one that I keep harping on, is that Scripture says it takes 11 days... It took the Israelites 11 days to go from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Travel at that time. There were some in the film last night were saying, "Well, you know, it was supernatural. They were moving day and night, and uh, God gave them strength so they could go 20 miles in a day." And I'm thinking, I couldn't get high school kid, high school boys to backpack 20 miles in a day. Okay, and they're in shape, and they, we're talking about six million i mean uh, two to three million people and one of the uh, let's just put try to put this as gently, politely, and sensitively as possible. One of the things I tell pastors who've been decided they want to take a tour group to Israel is remember you can only move as fast as the smallest bladder. And when you've got 20 people and you have to take a restroom break, you can be done in about 15 minutes. But if you've got 40, it's going to take a lot longer. And if you've got 2.5 million, that's going to take even longer. So this idea that they could make 15, 20 miles in a day I think is questionable. Most people use as a guideline that a caravan uh, would move about 8 to 10 miles a day. And so just try to be conservative in that. There's no way that Mount Sinai can be anywhere in Saudi Arabia. That just discounts it right away because you can't get from any of the alleged locations in Saudi Arabia to Kadesh Barnea in, in 20 or 25 days, much less 11 days. But that wasn't brought up by anybody. So there's different sites, and no site is without its alleged weaknesses. So it's it's a real interesting thing. But that'll be coming up. I don't know if Doug will say anything about that. But there are some uh, interesting things, and it's a part one and a part two because I will be at Tucson at Tucson Bible Church the ninth, tenth, and eleventh of, of uh, November. So that'll be. He'll be here this Thursday night, and then in three weeks he'll be back for part two. So that'll give you something to look forward to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. because he trusteth in thee for the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever before we open God's word let's have a few moments of silent prayer uh, so that you can confess sin in silent prayer if necessary to be in right relationship with the Lord and then I will open in prayer let's pray Father, we're thankful, so thankful that we have you to depend upon, that you are our uh, rock, our protector, our fortress, our shield, our high tower. You watch over us and take care of us in ways that, that we have no knowledge of. So, Father, we're thankful that we can always hide ourselves in you, our rock. Father, we pray for those we care about, for pastors like Dan Ingram and others who are dealing with health problems, some in retirement, some not yet in retirement, but growing older. We pray for Herman Maddox. And, Father, we just pray that you would give them the the strength and spiritual focus to stand firm as they face these tests related to health. Pray for Jim and Phyllis as they go from Lviv back over into Poland tomorrow and prepare to go to uh, Zambia. We pray for their ministry down in Livingston with... uh, Charles Musonda, and then up to Lusaka, watch over them, keep them safe, give them energy and rest as they travel. Uh, Father, we pray, too, for this nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray that you might restrain the evil that they seek to do and that in this election you would restrain corruption and that you would provide us with new leaders and leaders that have a firm understanding foundational biblical principles. And Father, we pray for us that we might always keep our focus on you, that ultimately you are the one who provides our security and stability. It is not our culture. It is not our leaders. It is not our government, but it is uh, our walk with you. So Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and strengthen our understanding of the world around us, the culture around us, that we may not be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, we're in Judges, we're in Judges uh, 10, 6 through 18, and we're in a section that is really related to understanding how this verse should be applied in a broader sense, to us. The problem that that happened with Israel is a problem that is happening to us and has happened to many other civilizations and cultures down through the centuries, and that is that they reject God and they turn to human viewpoint or paganism, and that's not a pejorative term. That is a technical term for those religions that do not accept uh, the God of the Bible, and I believe that that only includes Judeo-Christians, Uh, Jews and Christians uh, who hold to a Judeo-Christian view of the Old Testament. It excludes Islam because of its background, but that's another issue. The verse reads, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh and enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Asherahs. And I, I, I punctuate this in a way that that's the general statement because those gods and goddesses, the fertility gods and the and the sex worship that went on within these pagan fertility religions, uh, they had different names in different uh, geographical locations, in Syria, in Sidon, in Moab, in uh, Ammon, and in Philistines. It was Milcom and Moloch and Chemosh and Dagon. And the Israelites became attracted to this. They are conformed to the world. Okay, that's that's the illustration. Romans twelve two. Don't be conformed to the world. They are conforming themselves to the world. They are assuming the, the world view. And what was interesting um, getting into this is that today I had a I had a text. Can you please call me? And it came from a long long time friend of mine. We uh, knew each other vaguely when we were young at Baraka uh, Church, and then later, because she's several years older than I am, um, not that many, but few, uh, she was on staff at Penile when I was a high school worker and later, and we've bumped into each other professionally several times over the years, and every now and then, at least once a year, she'll send me a message like that, and we'll talk for about an hour, hour and a half. She had read a book. And she was just blistering mad and upset about this book, and it was talking about um, and critiquing where evangelical Christianity is going politically. And after she went through a lot of it and while she was doing that, I opened my laptop and I went to Amazon, looked at the book, and read the v- reviews. And, and this is not uncommon. I've had other conversations like this, but it feeds our background for why I'm going through the things I'm going through. And that is that we have to learn to read everybody we read in terms of their worldview, not in terms of what we think they 're saying, but in terms of where they 're coming from uh, there's another book that was uh, that came out a number of years ago dealing with um, uh, theocracy in America by an author named Kevin Phillips who had been in the George w Bush uh, administration and He had three parts to it, one on the oil business, one on economics, and one on um, the religious right. Now, I'm not adept in issues related to either the oil business or, or, as we say in Texas, the oil business, or in some of the details of economics. But I am very adept at what he was saying about evangelicalism and politics in that section And he had a, you know, a lot of things he said were true, but you can have a lot of the right pieces to the puzzle, but put them together wrong and you don't have the right picture. And that's how he was. And he was making all kinds of statements that were not true about leaders of the so-called religious right, the conservative right, and not that I agree with everything that some of these guys know, but because of my involvement with pre trib I knew several of these guys personally, and I knew that the things he was saying that they were trying to accomplish were not true. You have to understand the worldview of every author you read. You have to understand the worldview of every artist whose work you look at, whether it's uh, visual art, whether it's music, whether it is poetry, whether it is drama, every one of us does what we do out of our worldview. Now, some people aren't very intellectually aware of what their worldview is, or they may be in the kind of circumstance that I've often pointed out at the time of the American founding, is the worldview of the culture was a theocentric worldview, and you had Uh, People who were being influenced by uh, an already liberal drift in American Christianity, American Protestantism, toward Unitarianism, towards a more rationalistic view of Christianity... But they still believed in moral absolutes. They would still say that the Bible is the word of God. They just understood it in a different way. They they hadn't quite gotten to the precipice where they'd fallen off yet, but they were they were hanging off, as we might say. Some of them, and that, that I'm not dealing with anything related to salvation. I'm just thinking in terms of the way they think, how we think. You've heard me say this for years. It's hard enough to think with our content correct but how we think not just what we think content is what we think what we think about but how we think about it is very very important that's methodology remember the the adage a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong a right thing done in a right way is wrong a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong only when it's the right thing done in a right way. A right thing is content. A right way is methodology. And I cannot tell you how many times Dr. Tommy Ice and I had arguments with fellow students at Dallas Seminary that methodology isn't neutral. There's nothing since Genesis 3 that is neutral in this world. How we do what we do is as important as doing what we do. And how we think is hard. It's hard enough to think for a lot of people. Thinking doesn't come easy. But to think about how you think is difficult. And that's really what I've been covering with this continuity of being and what we're talking about here is it's important to understand ideas and the history of ideas. And ideas affect methodology, and this gets pretty deep for a lot of people, and I understand that. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. It's taken me years studying these things. But I remember a couple of things, uh, just to give a, little, a couple of anecdotes. I remember having a conversation with my dad. Uh, I was in college, I think. And he was talking about the importance of getting an education, and so we were talking about what an education was, and I said, well, you know, don't, don't most universities, most people go to college like they go to A&M, and they get degrees in engineering, and they go to U of H. My dad was an engineer, and he was, he was brilliant. Some of you have heard me tell the story about my dad, that when he was 16 years old, he was um, tutoring calculus at the University of Houston. When I was 16 years old, I was taking Algebra II for the second time i did not get the engineering or math gene and we we're having this conversation and i was pointing these things out he says he said engineers are not educated they're mechanics they're scientists that's not an education education is learning how to think express yourself develop ideas Liberal arts is where you learn and where you are educated, where you learn the things that give you a capacity for life, for understanding thoughts, for understanding ideas, for understanding art and music and literature. That gives you a capacity for life. Doctors are mechanics. You know, they're, they're just mechanics of the body. They, they have to be trained. They learn a lot. They, they're educated in, in one sense, but it's not a real education. That comes in liberal arts. And my dad was well-known because he would rant about the fact that that every engineering degree should require a, an English minor because he said, quote, engineers can't write worth a damn. Unquote. They cannot express themselves. Are you saying amen over there? Yes. That, that's because they're not educated. They're, they're smart and they can do math and arithmetic and science, but they don't have a, an education. They can't express themselves. So that's the difference. We have to learn how to think. And when I was in high school, I remember, and senior in high school, I went to Bel Air and I understand Bel Air is not cut-and-shoot high school, okay? Bel Air was, at that time, probably one of the top ten high schools in the country. And later I ran into my English teacher when I was a teacher, and we had a conversation about it, and she was no longer at Bel Air. She was up in um, uh, Cypher School District. She said, I cannot even come close to doing with the students in Cypher what I did with the students at Bel Air. And what we were doing, we were doing college-level work in high school. We had to read a book by Herman Hesse uh, called Damien. And and she gave us lectures on existentialism and on, you know, a number of other ideological trends and what I would call today the history of the ideas that shaped Herman Hesse. His uh, parents and his grandparents were evangelical Christians, I do not think he was at all, uh, and he was heavily influenced by by not Freud as much as Carl Jung. He had lots of emotional problems, and he was a, a well well known writer. And you can get into a lot of stuff like that. But but I remember hearing these these things as a senior in high school, thinking, "What's the biblical view?" I remember thinking about other things in like in political science or in civics fortunately I had a very conservative civics teacher at the time and but I would still say what's the what's what's the bible say about this what's that what's that biblical framework because what you're taught in a secular school a secular university is a secular view of history it is a human viewpoint interpretation of history it is not and and it it is not necessarily it's not from a divine viewpoint at all they may have some things that are right and some facts that are right but they don't get it because it's not shaped by a biblical framework that's why that is so, so, such an important important thing so at the, what we have to understand when we talk about these passages like Romans 12, to, that we're not to be conformed to the world, if you don't know what the characteristics of the worldly views are that are in your culture, then you're not going to know whether you're being conformed to them or not. So we have to somehow understand what those ideas are. We have to understand the conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, between paganism and biblical Christianity. And at the root is this thing that we're studying here is this creator-creature distinction. In Romans 1, to 25, I've spent a lot of time on, but verse 25 states it that historically the human race has rejected God. They have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation would be the best translation of that word, not creature, creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And in the ancient world, you had the development of this idea, which I started on last week called The Great Chain of Being. And I want to try to trace this idea in one class because I'm not here to teach philosophy, but I am here because I don't know where else any of you or anybody who listens to me is going to get this kind of material. I tell this story some with some pride because... uh about 20 years ago, I was on a trip to Greece and Turkey with Tim LaHaye and Ed Heinson and Tommy Ice. And Tommy was listening to his iPad all the time. And he told me this story afterwards. He said, he said so Ed asked me, he said, what are, you, what are you listening to all the time? He said, I'm listening to Robbie teach Genesis. And uh, he, said, he said, and they had a conversation about that. And Tommy said, yeah, he just gave a great, Uh, A great message on the documentary hypothesis and the problems with, with, uh, you know, uh, historical criticism in Genesis 1. And Ed looked at him and said, he did that from the pulpit? And he said, yes. He said, why would he do that? And Tommy looked at him and he said, if you're at a a small church, the only person that's going to train the high school kids and the adults to handle the the teachings of liberalism is the pastor. So where else are they going to learn that stuff? because they're going to be hammered with it in high school and in college. Ed did not have an answer. But that's the point. Sometimes I have to teach things that may be a little out of your depth because you don't have the background for it. I didn't have the background for it when I first started getting into it, but I was always interested in, in this And listening to Charlie's framework always helps stimulate that. So anyway, we have this thing called the great chain of being. It's also known as the scale of nature, scala natura, or the continuity of being. And as I pointed out the last couple of times, we have to have these these uh, vocabulary words They'll talk about ends, a Latin word meaning being or existence in itself. Well, what is it? When you look at something last week, I talked about a hymnal. There's two things you can say in relation to this hymnal. One is what it is, the whatness of it. It is a hymnal. It is a book. It has uh, uh, music notes and hymns in it, and it has uh, 720 pages. So you can say things, it's got a blue cover, it is uh, dimensions are about six inches by eight inches, things like that. Uh, That's the whatness of it. But if it doesn't actually exist, then it's just an idea. It's just uh, uh, something that's in the mind, that exists in the mind. So existence is different from attributes, okay? So that's what we're talking about, the continuity of what this thing is, that makes the difference between something that's just a thought and something that actually exists. The other word that is used is the word esse, which is a Latin word for the act of existing, and then essentia, and that's essence of something, the whatness of a being. And being is different from its whatness. And I pointed out last time that that when you think about all of these different things, what they end up with in this chart is something up here that is being, but then they'll put over here, they'll say God. But that God in this chart is a capital G. But what we'll learn tonight is that that's, that's really G with a lower case G. That's the ultimate thing that they can get to. But they don't know that that's the God of the Bible because they don't know what the attributes of that ultimate good are. Okay? So if you don't know what it is, you know it. That it that it exists, its being. What is it? That tells you whether it's the God of the Bible or not. And so most of these arguments for the existence of God only get you to something's there, but they and they just slap the name God on it. But they don't know that it's God because that has you have to have attributes. You got to have to know what it is. Uh, you you you've got something there that is, but what is it? The attributes tell you. So the only way you get that is from the Bible. So that's uh, dealing with the chain of being. And uh, what it basically means is everything from God to subatomic particles all share to one degree or another the same existence or the same principle of being. Thus, everything is sacred. Everything has some level of spark of divinity in it. So we have this chart here that you have the creator who is totally distinct uh, from the creature and what happens in the first rebellion with lucifer who is known by his hebrew name halal ben shahar which is uh, the shining son of the dawn so uh, jen and amos quok who wrote this the um, interlocked series um, which is where i got this chart they just use the term the shining star So a summary of this is in continuity of being, you have this scale. God on the one end, uh, I would say anything down to subatomic particles on the other, and man is somewhere on that scale. Part of it necessarily must go to impersonal fate and chance because the universe can't be personal if it's ultimately just matter. And uh, the ultimate authority then becomes one's own thinking, everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. Arthur Lovejoy has written a classic work on this, and he says the uns- it's the uh, essential and unbreakable links in the chain, including the divine creator. He's part of the chain. Uh, so he's part of creation in all of these systems. Uh, The divine creator, the angelic, heavenly, the human, the animal, the world of plants and vegetation and planet Earth itself with its minerals and waters. This image became the basis for calling anything and everything sacred. And he says the result was the conception of the plan and structure of the world, which through the Middle Ages. Now, who are the prominent thinkers in the Middle Ages? Are they Christian or are they non christian they're Christian. You've got men like Augustine and Abelard and uh, Aquinas and Bonaventure and uh, many others, Albert the Great, and all of them are influenced by this philosophy through their uh, attraction to either Platonism, that's the philosophy of Plato, or Aristotelianism, the philosophy of Aristotle. So here's the chain of being. I showed this last time. You have everything from uh, what they would call God at the top and down to rocks at the bottom, and it is basically what Darwin takes over and gives a scientific explanation for. So this is how I've drawn this out. It's with this pyramid going from the so called God at the top, all the way down, and all being emanates from from what 's at the top and shares in that existence, so we just back to romans one twenty five they exchange the truth of God for the lie now, in terms of review, because two weeks back, I talked about the egyptian and uh, the Egyptian cosmogony. And the Egyptian um, uh, gods and goddesses, and then the Babylonian or Mesopotamian gods and goddesses, and then we looked at some of the Greek gods and goddesses. This is the what we're talking, what I'm talking about in the next probably 25 30 minutes, is what Paul faced at Mars Hill in Athens. This is how everybody he talked to outside of the Jews who were embedded in, in the Mosaic Old Testament, but the Gentiles. We're all influenced by this. This is how they thought. And you know what? That's not any different from how the people you live next door to think. So he didn't face anything that was a better situation than what we face. Because they're, they're just as, in, in terms of their outward practices and their fertility religion practices and everything else, they're just as bad as what we see in our culture. So all pagan myths, Babylonian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, um, Aztec, whatever, all pagan myths begin with the existence of some sort of matter or the gods themselves. There's never nothing, okay? So there's no creation out of nothing. Uh, for, for all these systems, m- matter or energy is self-existent and is infinite. When you get into studying about a lot of the issues in early church history and medieval Theology and philosophy, this is a big issue. Is the universe eternal or infinite? And that's a big question, all these things, not getting into that. So this becomes an issue because they're importing ideas from the chain of being that all matter and all energy has to be eternal and, and infinite and always existed. And so, therefore, the ultimate reality is not a person but a thing. And um, it's not reason, it's not the logos, it's uh, not a person, it's just matter. Second, we've seen that the mechanics of creation in the pagan myths always involved uh, procreation. It's very graphic and it's very perverse, uh, but that becomes the process by which uh, creating other things takes place. Third, all of these ancient cosmologies tell stories where uh, already existing material is transformed into something else that's what we have in the big bang theory which is coming on a rough rough go right now because of what's been discovered in recent um uh, uh, uh ship that went out there and took pictures uh, existing materials transformed into something else one part of the universe causes or self generates another part of the universe but there's no reason behind it. Fourth, this shows a basic continuity between all existing things. And fifth, it ends up with man being one with the universe, which is a pantheistic idea. Sixth, Satan makes the same claim when he suggests that Eve can be like God. He just elevates her up this chain of being. You can be like God. You can just go up a step, and uh, you can be a God also. Uh, That's what Mormons believe in, by the way. Uh, Their little saying is, as you are God was, as God is, you will be. That means that you can become your own little God and go off and have your own little place. So I talked about the fact that ideas are important. Good ideas produce good results, and bad ideas produce bad results. Well, one of the most important things that we can study is the history of ideas because ideas have consequences. And as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And if you don't study history and you don't study the history of ideas, you'll just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And and as we see in our generation, a fantasy world where they think that, well, other people failed at it, but we're going to succeed as they talk about Marxism and socialism. No, you won't. It never will because it doesn't fit the reality of God's creation. So we have to understand that everything we read, watch, listen to, is an expression of ideas. It's an expression of a worldview. And we have to understand what are those ideas from whence do they come, what is their impact, and then how do we evaluate them? So even when we talk about these things that are not commonly talked about, we need to recognize that that they are important, and they affect us every, every single day. So um, we're, I'm losing my mouse here. Okay. Um, all of these things that are produced, you can think about Bach, you can think about Uh, A philosopher like Spinoza, you can think of uh, someone who wrote uh, narrative poetry like John Milton, and you can think about uh, Darwin and what he wrote. You can think about Star Wars and what is the worldview that Gene Roddenberry expressed through, through, uh, not Star Wars, Star Trek, Uh, what Gene Roddenberry expresses through Star Trek. Um, Then you can look at what George Lucas produced through Star Wars. They, the, everything they, they put in there and what they excluded is intentional, and they are expressing their deeply held core beliefs. And I've seen interviews with both Gene Roddenberry and with George Lucas talking about uh, their views, and they all come out of an evolutionary, uh, non-theistic wor- worldview. George Lucas specifically modeled everything he did on, on Buddhism. So what are you seeing? What's the message that is coming across when you watch those shows? And look, I've seen every Star Wars movie, I think. Okay, so, and I was a big Star Trek fan, but I understood this. And there are many times I turn Star Trek off because I'm like, okay, you know, you're just overloading me with your humanistic worldview and I don't want it. Um, but we have to be able to identify that. And your kids or your grandkids watching this, unless you've given them a, a, a filter and a grid so that they can discern what's happening, um, they're going to have problems. They can, they can start buying into that worldview, and it influenced this, and that's not what you want. So to chart this out, I think for some reason this isn't coming up right. On the left side, we have the biblical view. We have God who is a personal, infinite God, and he creates. That's why I have a black line there. There's a strict distinction between the personal, infinite God and the finite universe. And so you have angels, man, animals, vegetation, matter and energy are all there, but they are distinct from the triune, personal, infinite God. Now, on the other side... You've got the pagan worldview. This is everybody else that's not influenced by the Judeo Christian worldview, the Old Testament and New Testament. So God and everything else are now within a closed system. See, this is an, really this is a a system that is that is open because what that means is that God can enter into his creation. And he can get out of his creation. It's open. But in a closed system, you have God, angels, man, animals, and nature are all part of that system. Okay, I've got to reset that. One more. God, angels, man, nature, they're all one. Okay, that's why I have that circle there. It's all one. Now, where we're going to go with this is that's monism, where ultimate reality is all one. We're all part of everything else. There's this uh, interconnectedness because of existence or being. This is symbolized by the yin-yang symbol. Where everything is one, there's just this appearance of the difference between white and black. But notice that even within white, there's black, and within black, there's white. That yin yang, yang si- si- uh, symbol comes out of, comes out of Buddhism and Eastern religions. Everything is one. There are those Eastern religions are monistic, pantheistic religions. So, this is the distinction. Now, two weeks ago, I went through the religious cosmogonies of the ancient world. And so tonight, in the next 20 or 30 minutes, I'm going to give you an overview of the philosophical cosmogonies. And what we're going to do is we're going to survey an idea, the history of an idea, which is the continuity of being. We're going to start with the ancient Greeks, and we're going to bring it up to today. And we're going to do that in maybe 30 minutes. So, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who's a former director of the American Museum of Natural History, in his book, From the Greeks to Darwin, says, When I began the search for anticipations of the evolutionary theory, I was led back to the Greek natural philosophers. That natural, what he's talking about is they're seeing nature as all one continuity of being. I went back to the Greek natural philosophers and I was astonished to find how many of the pronounced and basic features of the Darwinian theory were anticipated even as far back as the 7th century BC. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, this is a long quote and I'm breaking it down so that we can understand what he's saying because it's significant. It's by Milton K. Munitz, who's a professor of philosophy at New York University, in his book, The Theories of the Universe. He says, the type of thinking initiated by the Milesian school of pre-Socratic thinkers. Now, you know, you're familiar enough with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. That's the chronological order but there were philosophers who were the sort of the uh, incipient philosophers that preceded Socrates, and those are the pre-Socratics, okay? They are before Socrates. And the three that you study when you take any philosophy course are Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes. Those are great names for cats, don't you think? And they operated in really the 7th and the 6th century B.C., and their ideas influenced in many directions, is what he's saying. One of the most remarkable outcomes of such speculations, representing a culmination of their materialistic thought, was to be found in the atomist school. So what you've got is the pre-Socratics, and then they're going to influence some guys after them that come up with this theory of atomism. And I'll show you what that is in a minute, but we have to uh, first define a couple of other terms. Pre-Socratics, these guys are all monistic pantheists. Now, what in the world is a monistic pantheist? Well, first of all, what is monism? Monism is the view that all reality is of one kind. It's just sort of a, a, an image as such that you think there are differences. They're really not. All is one. Uh, it can be explained as a neutral monism, a material monism, or a pantheistic monism. Materialistic monism is everything is reducible to matter alone, which is eternal, in pantheism, there's the belief that God and the creation are identical. Lowercase g. God and the creation are identical. So you see a tree that's God. And nature is, nature equals God. This is what undergirds environmentalism. Now Christians have their view of how to take care of the, the environment. It's called stewardship. That's different from environmentalism. Environmentalism is a philosophy, and if you want to understand it in depth and really get into the heaviness of this philosophy, then you read, need to read Mark Musser's book. And I can't remember what the new title is. He gave, gave it a new title. But it's really, really well done, and he can, he has great control of the philosophy and all of this. And But, it, you know, it's a little heavy even for me. Uh, but it's good. It's important to understand these things because that's what we're facing with. We're getting idolatry shoved down our throats in the form of environmentalism and moving to electric cars and all of this other nonsense, and it's all coming out of a denial of the creator-creature distinction and their pantheistic monism. But you never thought about it that way before, did you? So monism is everything is reducible to one, and pantheism is the belief that God and the creation are identical. So in monith- monistic pantheism, the ultimate reality or the basic stuff of the universe, matter, gas, or being, is identified as God. So when, if everything is reducible to matter, matter has always existed, then they just slap the t- God on that because everything comes from that, so that must be God. Now, in the Star Wars movies, the force is... Dualistic. It can be used for good or for evil. Darth Vader's using it for evil. Um, Obi Wan Kenobi's using it for good. And there's a scene in The Empire Strikes Back, which was the second of the original three. And I can't get the rest of them in order, so I think it's the fifth in the whole series now. But there's a scene where Luke Skywalker is trying to l- learn how to use his lightsaber, and he goes into the swamp. And Darth Vader uh, appears before him and they have a lightsaber duel and he uses his lightsaber and he decapitates Darth Vader. And his, Darth Vader's head rolls to the side and he walks over and he opens the visor and he sees himself. He sees his own face, his own head inside that, that helmet. What is that saying? That's saying that he and Darth Vader are are, are all part of the same continuity of beings. The Beatles popularized this kind of thinking in a song, I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. We all share in the same existence. And so these ideas have permeated our culture. Most people don't even know that they're drinking toxic ideas when they go to see films. So we have Thales. He was one of the first Milesians, and he said that in terms of ultimate reality, primordial matter, that was water. And so from water comes everything else that is in existence. Next guy is Anaximander, and his dates are 611-546. His idea of primordial matter is that there are these, these opposites of hot and cold and wet and dry and then everything is going to come out of that. All existence is going to come out of that. Then the third guy is Anaximenes, and his dates are around 528, so this is 6th century B.C., and you have primordial matter for him is air. Everything comes from air, and so that leads to everything in existence. Okay, now you have an idea when we read this quote who the pre-Socratics are, Thales, Anaximenes, Anaximander, so let's read it with a little more understanding. The type of thinking initiated by the Milesian school of pre-Socratic thinkers, Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, in the 6th century B.C. was carried forward in many directions. One of the most remarkable outcomes of such speculations represented a culmination of their materialistic thought was to be found in the atomist school. Originally worked out in its main features by Leucippus and Democritus in the 5th century B.C., the teachings of atomism were later adopted as a basis for the primarily ethical philosophy of Epicureanism. Okay, so you see it's the history of these ideas going forward. So you have Leucippus, who's a pre-Socratic philosopher, who is influenced by the um, Milesian philosophers, And he influenced Democritus, and according to Democritus, all things were made of fundamental indivisible particles, which he labeled atoms. He coined the word. That's where it comes from. His understanding of an atom wasn't your understanding or my understanding of an atom, but it was the smallest thing he could think of at the time. So Munitz says about uh, Democritus that It, referring to atomism, elaborates the conception of a universe whose order arises out of a blind interplay of atoms. Now, let me tell you, what is a blind interplay of atoms? That's pure random chance. How does that produce order? Hmm? Now, I was talking talking on Sunday. I said... What, what, what has to happen to have a successful civilization is you have to have order. What's the opposite of order? It's disorder. It's chaos. Judges is when chaos was king. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, you have chaos and disorder. You do not have order. A civilization or culture cannot survive. And so, but their view of ultimate reality, his view was that all of these have an interplay of blind chance blind interplay of atoms rather than a product of deliberate design of a universe boundless in spatial extent, infinite in its duration, and containing innumerable words in various stages of development or decay. So L.T. Moore in his book Dogma says about this, if evolutionists must find a cornerstone in Greek philosophy for their doctrine, they should give this honor to Democritus, his doctrine of mechanical and atomistic monism, in which all phenomena are reduced to material particles moving according to natural law, pure randomness, is in the real sense of the word modern science. That's a profound statement. What, what that's saying is that that ideology which undergirds the concept of ultimate reality in modern thought is based on this same idea that undergirded paganism in the ancient world. So here's our timeline to try to help you put this together. We have pre-Socratics, Thales, Anaximenes, and Anaximander. As a result of their influence, you have a further development of those ideas in the atomism of Leucippus and Democritus. Then you have a bit of a reaction by Plato and Aristotle. And Plato takes one view. He's the ancient rationalist, the ancient Descartes, ultimate reality is in the realm of ideas, not in the physical. In Platonism, there's something not quite right about matter. He doesn't identify it as sin, but there's something not quite right about it. Superior to matter is the immaterial or the realm of ideas. And so he calls the ultimate, ultimate reality, the idea of ideas or the complete other uh, being, the sumum bonum, the good, the absolute good, our absolute being in terms of absolute existence. And then people slap the word God on that because that's the best they can do. But that's not God. That's not I am that I am. That's not the self-existent God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who is a creator who's distinct from his creation. But because everybody calls that God, Christians get sucked into thinking that those arguments lead to the biblical God. They don't. Even Aquinas recognized that at some point. Now, Munitz goes on to say, "...it elaborates the conception of a universe whose order arises out of a blind interplay of atoms rather than a product of deliberate design, of a universe boundless in spatial extent... Infinite in its duration and containing innumerable words in innumerable worlds in various stages of development or decay, it was this concept, an infinite and at bottom irrational universe. Notice that that what you end up with if your starting point is with the eternal existence of matter that cannot explain mind. How do you get mind which is immaterial out of matter? You cannot explain it. So you have to have a, you have to leap to irrationality. That's what he's saying. That at at bottom, if that's irrational, what do you think Darwinism leads to? Irrationality. Uh, it's this concept of an infinite and at bottom irrational universe against which plato aristotle and the whole tradition of theologically oriented thought in western culture set themselves in sharp and fundamental opposition it was the same conception however which once more came into the foreground of the of attention at the dawn of modern thought we went back to the vomit as peter puts it in second uh, peter like a dog returning to its vomit. It was the same conception. So he says, It has remained up to the present time an inspiration for those modes of scientific thinking that renounce any appeal to teleology in the interpretation of physical phenomena. He's the professor of philosophy of science at NYU, or he was in his book, The Theories of the Universe. See, they all start with chaos in the, in the religious conception, out of chaos, you, chaos creates its own gods that are there, and in, in the Big Bang Theory, you start with chaos, and from an explosion, you have order. Explain that. You really can't. That's called irrationality. L.T. Moore says, after Aristotle's death, Greek thought gradually divided into two schools of the Stoics and the Epicureans. At these two schools held, uh, as these two schools held the world of thought in allegiance well into the Roman Empire. What does that tell you? This is the way people thought in, in the first century, in the second century, in third century. That's why he says it exerted much influence on Christian writers. Their ideas of science and evolution are very important. Now, this slide got out of order you have Heraclitus, who in the 6th century said everything was changed. The universe is continually changing, and thus it is senseless to ask for its origins in the manner of a myth. He taught there is no beginning or end. No, no beginning or end, only existence. Okay, so that's, that's Heraclitus. So I'm going to skip to the next slide here. Okay, W.K.C. Guthrie, a well-known, noted, outstanding expert on Greek history and Greek philosophy, in his book on the Greek philosophers says, this man also expressed the same thing by saying that man's soul is a small part of the gods, the God being the universe. He goes on to say, thus we find that all of them applied the name God or the divine to their primary substance. And that suckers every Christian you know. And I'll Plato led us to God. I can't tell you how many people say Aristotle had an argument for the existence of God. No, he didn't. He had the existence of something that he labeled God. But it's not an argument for the existence of the God of the Bible. Okay, then you had some others. I'm going to skip some of these slides and get down to what comes up. Here you have Aristotle and Plato. I want to say something about them. This is from the uh, painting, the School of Athens, and you have uh, Plato on the left pointing up because reality is up. It's in the realm of ideals. And Aristotle's pointing out like this, saying, no, it's in the realm of the things we see, the things we sense, the existing things. So to understand Plato, I developed this little chart. For him, the ultimate reality was ideas which he, he used different words for this, forms, absolutes, universals, the other, the absolute good, the sumum bonum. That's the ultimate reality. And matter, the things we see around us, are individual things, bodies, and becoming. Everything's in, in, in flux. Everything's in change. And he says that out of the perfect fullness up here... Uh, ne- it necessarily the sumum bonum, the ultimate good, necessarily creates all possible all possible things it necessarily no volition necessarily creates all possible things with all possible transitions, and so you have matter that that it comes from that. Lovejoy in his book says, what the schoolmen, the scholastics in the Middle Ages called the ends perfectissimum, that is, what's at the top of the chain, the summit or the hierarchy of being, the ultimate and only completely satisfying object of contemplation and adoration, there can be little doubt that the idea of the good was the God of Plato. And there can be none that it became the God of Aristotle. And one of the elements or aspects of the God of most of the philosophic theologies of the Middle Ages, that's everyone from origin on, you know, up to the Reformation. So Aristotle then really systematizes the scale of being with, quote, God at the top all the way down to vegetation. And he said, The universe resembles a large and well-regulated family In which all the officers and servants and even the domestic animals are subservient to each other in a proper subordination. Each enjoys the privileges and prerequisites peculiar to his place and at the same time contributes by that just subordination to the magnificence and happiness of the whole. The point is everything has its proper place. It was used to justify slavery. It was used to justify all kinds of social inequity, all kinds of things, which is exactly what Darwin is going to end up doing with it. You know, it's the white races that are ultimately going to uh, destroy the primitive races in his book. So it just hyper-racism. So this leads to a number of questions. Two for our purposes are, first of all, why is there in, existence of u- the, in the existence of the universe of change flux or becoming? Why is there change flux or becoming in the universe? And second, what principle determines the number of beings that make up the sensible temporal world? The internal concre- con- contradiction in this whole system is that being necessarily and logically develops all things. So that in that first question, why is there in the existence of the universe of change, flux, and become? Where does existence come from? Why does it change? And that's the internal contradiction here. This leads to a couple of other key ideas in the history of philosophy. One is the eternality and infinity of the universe, which is highly debated through the early church and philosophy because of the influence of philosophy, and it's a, it's a non-question. It's the wrong question. It's not, it only comes up if you're buying into the framework of Greek philosophy, and that's my point, is that they are very influenced by Neoplatonism. Um, and that all possible things necessarily exist. I saw that in a quote from from Platonism, and that's the basis for the classification of all things. And that that it is what it is because it necessarily exists that way. So Plato, in his idealism and rationalism, fails to answer the deep questions. You just can't get to to, to answers. It fails. Rationalism alone always fails. Aristotle in empiricism always fails, it failed to answer the deep questions. That leads to skepticism, the apparent inability to find answers. If reason can't get us to hope and to meaning in life, and experience and empiricism can't get us to hope and meaning in life, what am I gonna do? You know, there's no meaning in life, there's no value, and that's skepticism. That's what happens by the end of the nineteenth century. The from the Enlightenment to the end of the 19th century, they go through the same thing: rationalism, empiricism, skepticism, and that is always followed by mysticism. And that's where we are: uh, the, the New Age movement, the uh, popularity of that, subjectivism, emotionalism, all of that. So, the next step: we've gone through the Greeks and their impact. Now, the impact on the early church. Now. During the time before the 1st century and early 1st century, you had uh, Platonism morph into what is known as Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is pure mysticism and pantheism. And that is the dominant worldview until about the 11th century. For a 1,000 years, that's, that's the worldview that Christianity is having to deal with. And inherent to that is the chain of being. So they all have, and in fact, it shows up in a lot of the early church theologians. Ernst Trelz, okay, Trelz is a 19th century German liberal uh, philosopher and, and theologian, and, but he makes the accurate observation that medieval Roman Catholicism doesn't belong to the Middle Ages but it's the last creative expression of classical philosophy. Plato, Aristotle, Neoplatonism, it all boils out in medieval theology. And uh, he says, uh, it's the last creative expression of classical philosophy which can be said to have died in giving birth to it. So Neoplatonism was again the attempt of human viewpoint philosophy to absorb, redefine, and spin biblical truth. Its roots go back to the introduction of Jewish thought. You have Jewish mysticism um, in, the, in the first century B.C. and its development. It, it's, it, it's involved at the time. It takes ideas out of the Septuagint. And it blends it with Greek thought and with uh, Platonism, Jewish mysticism, and various Christian concepts and just spins up this metaphysical soup that poisons the next 1,500 years of Christianity. That's the influence of worldliness. That's why Paul says that, that don't be pressed into the mold of the world. It's toxic. We have to understand this. Arthur Kessler says the chain of being is still a process of degeneration by descent, which is you know, that's the chain of being. That's the difference with that and, and um, Darwin. Darwin has everything moving to a higher plane, and, and chain of being is really degenerative. So in the early church, you have Origen. Origen is extremely influenced by Platonism, and it influences his his interpretation. That's why he's allegorical, Because the literal text he equates to matter, therefore that's basically evil. It doesn't matter what the literal text says. You've got to go to the idealism, the ultimate spiritual meaning behind it. That influences Augustine and his ideas and his theology, influences Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Boethius. And Boethius and Macrobius are very influential on the subsequent uh, thinkers and theologians. since from the supreme God mind arise and from mind soul, and since that in this turn creates all subsequent things and fills them all with life, and since this single radiance illumines all and is reflected in each. That's the chain of being. Everything participates together. This is in a commentary and a work by Scipione in the early church. So he goes on to say... um, All things follow in continuous succession, degenerating in sequence to the very bottom of the series. The attentive observer will discover a connection of parts from the supreme God, a connection of parts from God down to the last dregs of things, mutually linked together and without a break. And this is Homer's golden chain. So he connects it back to to Homer. You have in the Middle Ages, you have Abelard who described the Trinity as the one mind and the world soul, just as in Platonism. You have, uh, he, he says that the one mind and the world soul equals the Trinity. So he takes Greek concepts and imposes that on the Trinity. He claimed that early Greek philosophers held and taught the Trinity in all of its essential aspects and argued that Platonists were given a special revelation before the Christian era. No, they weren't, you know, but this is how you get people to accept these ideas and they they come in, Uh, it's a Trojan horse. Hugh of St. Victor, you never heard of these people, that's why I'm telling you about them. These were the brilliant thinkers of the Middle Ages that post-Enlightenment educators ignore because... We don't need anybody who believed in God. Hugh of St. Victor held to the Neoplatonic procession of all things from God and their return to God. But let's not leave out the influence of Muslims. I said before that Islam doesn't generate anything new. It transports ideas from one culture to the next culture. You have uh, one of the foremost philosophers, they, they had Aristotle before, what, uh, before most of Europe had Aristotle, Aristotle disappeared for about a thousand years, or about five hundred. No, about about a thousand years. So he, uh, but but Aristotle was recovered by the Muslims when they captured uh, parts of Turkey. They were they had that. So Aristotle was translated into Arabic, and that influenced them, and they all had this idea that all, there's this. Uh, Intelligence that is, in, that is in the chain of being above mankind. They, they all, they held to that. Avicenna, you, you know, there is one book by Louis Lamour that is in sort of medieval Spain and he talks about Avicenna and Averroes. So if you read Louis Lamour, he's educated enough to know who these guys were. So, but they all held this to this chain of being, and even Aquinas. He, point number one, he accepted Aristotle's natural philosophy in total, including the chain of being. Second, I, mis- I changed up the numbers. I was leaving, trying to leave some things out. He rejected parts of it. He rejected the creation by emanation, and he tried to hold on to a consistent ex nihilo creation, uh, which appears to be a contradiction in his thinking. He rejected the eternity of matter, but nevertheless he uses their terminology which uh, imports this chain of being idea. That's the guts of what that is talking about. Um, most importantly, Aquinas, the great Catholic medieval philosophy, and still considered the, the doctor of the church. He is the theologian of Roman Catholic theology. And he built upon Aristotle's conception of there being a hierarchy of beings. This is described in uh, the Dictionary Philosophy and Religion, Eastern and Western Thought. Uh, Rees says, Aquinas conceived of the chain of being as having gradations between God at the top and unformed matter at the bottom, with God being pure actuality and unformed matter as pure potentiality. Now, I want you to remember and understand that language. I'm joking. When we get into the last verse in the paragraph we're studying in Ephesians where it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, you run into the question of impassibility of God. Does God really grieve? Does God have emotions? Now, the doctrine of the impassibility is hard for a lot of people in our emotion-driven culture to understand when you say God doesn't have emotions. They just, they just freak out, but... We're not educated to think of... Emotion wasn't an English term until the 1700s. Passion was one term that was used. Does God have passions? The P-A-S-S in impassibility means God does not have passions. Passions are things that come and go. God, it never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There that fundamental to understanding impassibility is, number one, the creator-creature distinction. That's one reason I'm spending so much time on this, is when we get to understanding these anthropopathisms that make it sound like God has emotions like you and I have emotions, we have to understand those are figures of speech. And if God has emotions like we have emotions, that leads to the open theology of God, which was even the Evangelical Theological Society had to admit that was heresy, and it, it implies that God changes. An emotion is a response to something somebody else does that causes a change in me. Does God change? And, and part of the way that this was explained in the Middle Ages was God is, is pure actuality. Now, you have to understand that term in its philosophical meaning, but they had the language to express this stuff. And if God is pure actuality, he's not potential. There can't be any change in him, and therefore God must be impassable. In fact, you don't have any theologians that come along in the history of Christianity to argue that God has emotions like humans have emotion until the mid-19th century is a product of liberalism in theology. Prior to that, every theologian, it didn't matter if you were a Calvinist or a or a Pelagian or Augustinian, it didn't matter where you were on the spectrum. It didn't matter if you were a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a Roman Catholic. Nobody believed in the passability of God until you get into liberalism. When everything is subjective and when Freud brings emotion to the center point of reality, that's when everybody starts thinking God has to have emotion. So they're all they're doing by saying God has emotion, is recreating God in their own image. And that's a problem. But I've been reading a lot about this lately, and and I'm reading all this stuff, and these guys are writing at a graduate, at a doctoral level. You have to understand a lot of philosophy and a lot of theology and a lot of history to catch what they're saying. But that's what they're saying. Um, So it's very important here. Rees describes Aquinas's position as instances of formed matter are differentiated by differences among. I'm not going to read all of that. He rejects that. So the biblical worldview is a creator-creature distinction. One God, totally distinct from man, totally distinct. I would not use the word nature. I'm, I've been trying to discipline myself because nature picks up the idea that somehow it is self-existent or autonomous. We have the creator and we have his creation. I love to go out into the creation of God. I love to look at the animals in God's creation, but I don't want to go out in nature because nature, what's that related to? Natural. It's God's creation. We need to maintain that distinction in our language. Uh, Second, he's a personal sovereign God, and third, he's the ultimate authority. But in the pagan worldview that always boils down to a continuity of being. God's man and nature are on the same scale and and you can, you know, go up or down the scale. It's uh, governed by impersonal fate and chance. And third, the ultimate authority is you, the individual. And if everybody's the ultimate authority, are you going to have chaos or order? You're going to have chaos. And that's where we are. That is the ultimate in postmodernism. So I did it. You had a flyover of the history of one idea, and that forms the metaphysics. You remember the iceberg illustration? And one guy told me, he said, you don't, can't believe how many times I draw out the iceberg ellis- illustration to educated people, and they're blown away because they've never thought before that below the waterline. They've never thought about how what they are saying or what they say they believe is the result of uh, of an ethical system that is based on an epistemological system that is based on a certain view of ultimate reality they've never made that connection they just live above the waterline there so all of this is is really really important it it educates you And that's what we need because it gives us vocabulary and it gives us intellectual tools to be able to talk intelligently about sophisticated concepts that are in the Bible and why the battles occur that occur because when you look at that worldview distinction right here, When you have a clash between the the biblical worldview and the pagan worldview, that's going to be explosive. That's what we're seeing right now. The United States of America and Western civilization are what they are because of a biblical worldview and the distinction between the creator and the creature that's fundamental. How many times do we have that creator-creature language in the Declaration of Independence? But when you deny that... You're cutting the intellectual foundation out from under the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and you can't think within the framework of those ideas if you don't understand this. I mean, you know, you can, but, but you really can't. You, you, we have to think conceptually here because this is a battle of ideas, and ideas are what shape a culture or destroy a culture. And the only ideas that can give stability to a culture are those that come out out of the Bible self-consciously, not accidentally. So with that, we're going to come back and show how Jephthah is a believer, but Jephthah still functions as if he's a pagan. Now, we've never had a leader like that in America. So we can't relate to it. But he's a bull in a china closet. And yet the Holy Spirit comes upon him and God uses him to do great things and lists him in the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Those seem to be contradictory ideas to lots of evangelicals. So they try to change up what's really going on in Judges. Anyway, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and gives us a tool, a framework for understanding the dynamics of what goes on today as well as what happened in the ancient world, that it's ideas that that move history, change history, transform things, and that nothing is superior to the ideas of Scripture because they come from you, the creator of all things. So, Father, we pray that we might think through these things and think about them and come to understand that history is important, the history of ideas is important, that understanding where things come from, tracing the genealogy of ideology is important because there are many mistakes and failures that come and we must learn from history. But what we learn from history is we don't learn from history. But may we be wise and learn from history, and learn from Scripture above all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.